Yo, what's good, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Vitamin C. It's brought to you by CLNS Media Network. As usual, I'm your boy, Adam Taylor. And as usual, I'm joined by my homie, my compadre, my co-host in crime, Mr. Tim Shields. What's popping, Tim? Not much, man. Um, just kind of reacting to everything that happened over the weekend with this loss. Everyone's up in arms. <laughs> so I was wondering what this thing, I, my, my headphones were like this, and I was like, what's this on? And then I realized it's the AKG on my headphones. The AKG like, in your headphones? I'm like, yeah, no, it's meant to say Adam Taylor NBA. Where's the AKG? Oh, very nice. Ah, yeah. Now, so... Yeah, the, the last of the Warriors, man. I woke up this morning as usual. I didn't check the. I've said that five times in the first minute. Uh, I check. I didn't check the scores. I, I, you know, I had some stuff to take care of this morning. So throughout the day, like I was really tempted to hit on Twitter and that didn't do it. Watched the game, then went to Twitter, and man, some people were overreacting. Now, this isn't a show where we talk about people's Twitter takes, so I'm not going to go into that at all. Mm-hmm. But what I do want to say is, yeah, Jason Tatum played bad. Yeah, the Warriors had the Celtics number from from the get go, right? Like the Warriors out outplayed them, and I tweeted this: the Celtics weren't outmatched. The Warriors weren't the clear cut, most talented team on the floor. They were outplayed, and it's a lot easier to fix a team that got outplayed than it is to fix it when you're outmatched. So I'm not too worried long term. I do want to in a mil- in a minute. I do want to talk about the way the Warriors look to kind of limit J- Jason and why. You know, the, the Celtics probably should have looked to play through Jalen a little bit more. I felt like Jalen had it going. He didn't get the touches because they were trying to force feed Tatum to try and get Tatum hot. I think recognizing when one guy doesn't have it and going to the opposite guy needs to become more of a focus point. But overall, man, look, it's a West Coast road trip. At the minute, they're one on one. My biggest takeaway here is whenever there's a big West Coast trip during the season, we always talk about, hey, if you can go three and two. If you can go, uh, you know, like two and two, if you can go four and one, as long as you come back without a losing record on that swing, then it's been a good trip. You can't win every game. And yeah, it sucked that it, this was against the Warriors and the Warriors were the team that, you know, stole that championship last season. I'm not saying stole as in like they didn't deserve to win it, but they came in, punched you in the mouth and walked away as champions. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, revenge game would have been nice. But at the same time, you're one-on-one on your West Coast swing. You still have the best record in the NBA. You still sit top of the Eastern Conference. And now you go and play the Clippers. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like this is terrible. But at the same time, I can understand the deflation everybody had coming off that blowout against Phoenix, coming into this game against Golden State and just it just not being there. Yeah, and I think part of it also has to be chalked up to the fact that it is the team that they lost to the finals, you know? It, it, it makes sense that you would expect them to come out with a little bit more pep in their step, a little bit better prepared. It is also important, I think, to keep in mind, this is the first time that the Joe Missoula Celtics are going against the Warriors. So there's probably a little bit of a learning curve there. You know, Joe Missoula said as much in his post game talking about how we need to do better. Like we as a coaching staff need to do better to put Jason Tatum in better spots for him to succeed. And I tend to agree with the notion that Jalen Brown should have gotten the ball more. Um, They should have tried to find ways to get him going because literally every single time that he managed to get the ball and get a three up, like he was knocking shots down and he was part of the reason why the Celtics were even able to like kind of try and make it a game. You know, it, it felt like the Celtics were pretty much held at arm's length the entire game. I don't think they ever had the lead at any point. 
felt like they were probably with about 10 points the entire game, cut it to like eight, seven, six. I think the closest might have gotten was like five or four. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's you get a Steph Curry three or another shot, and all of a sudden the lead's back to eight or it's back to 10 again. And that's pretty much how the entire game went. Uh, the Celtics offense looked a little bit rough, mainly because Jason Tatum, they were just throwing bodies at him. Felt like that was like the entire thing. He never at one point during that game looked like comfortable or settled in. And I don't want to say, I don't want to say that this was like a repeat of the finals because I do think that Tatum was playing hurt. And like some people are like, well, I guess this proves that Tatum was healthy during the finals and you're just making excuses. I don't think that at all. Um, I think what that does is it discredits the Warriors for their ability to play up um, in a way that they, even with their record being what it is, they remind me a lot of the ways that the Miami Heat still give the Celtics problems. Like they're still a very good team, regardless of what their record is. They are much better than 14 and 13. And that's why you kind of, at the end of the day, you have to hope that they stay where they are in the standings and don't end up actually, you know, managing to be a threat because if they are in the finals, it's going to be another handful. Um, they're an example of a team that you have to respect, but they they gave the Celtics major problems and it. Yeah, it came first by the way that they attacked Tatum big time. I mean, let's be honest as well. When you look at the coaching battle, I think that Steve Kerr won that coaching battle. Without question. And, and you mentioned the Miami Heat. It's no coincidence that Eric Spolstra is over with Miami. And in my opinion, he's the best coach in the league right now. And I think that because of the situation that Kerr walked into when he kind of t- when he took over the Warriors, everybody looks at him like, hey, you just got given the perfect team and anybody could have won with that team. Yeah, anybody could have won once. These guys have won, what is it, four chips? These four guys titles won, now. You yeah. know what I'm saying? You don't win four championships without your coach being a more than capable coach. Kerr is a very, very good X's and O's mind. And when he came in, you know, Mark Jackson wasn't winning a championship with his team. Kerr comes in, wins four. So it makes it's it definitely tracks in terms of coaching battles that Kerr had such an impact. Because when you look at the way, and this is what I wanted to touch on, when you look at the way the Warriors defended against Tatum and like the the, the initial kind of mentality that they came into was hey, we're gonna have Clay Thompson, and Kerr spoke about this. We're gonna have Clay Thompson guarding. Tatum, then we're going to have Looney and Draymond sitting behind the play. And I think Kerr said because they're our best kind of like, um, they're the best readers of the game, they're our best switchers. And they're also two of the higher IQ defenders. So they can verbalize their calls, they can see what's happening in front of them, and they can make sure that the defense switches and rotates well enough that they can keep the, the offense in front of them. And that's what happened. The Celtics found it really hard to kind of penetrate off that perimeter, that point of attack. And the Warriors are really good at swallowing up space. So when you've got Draymond Green and he's kind of calling out switches, calling out reads, then all of a sudden, you know, Tatum's hunting mismatches, screens are happening. You've gone from having Clay Thompson on you, now you're being guarded by Draymond. Then it's switching. You might get a mismatch on Jordan Paul, but you've got Looney ready to kind of rotate over and help on you or Wiseman that's... um. Sorry, not not Wiseman Kuminga, that's super athletic, that can rotate over and gobble up some space on you. It's really difficult. And I think that they've threw that many different looks at Tater. And Clay himself is such a like a versatile defensive like player. And he it's not like he's a scrub. 
You know, I mean, this dude's an all-star that can score the ball and can defend. He's a true free and D type guy with Draymond behind you. They've really made it difficult. And the Celtics have been a team that have generated a bunch of their offense off rim reads this year. Hey, we're going to beat you. We're going to screen. We're going to come off that screen. We're going to drive the lane. We're going to draw the defense in towards the rim. And we're going to kick the rock out. We're going to make the right read. Well, that's really difficult to do when you can't beat the team after when you're coming off a screen and you've got somebody on your hip. It's hard to see over the defense. It's hard to make them rim reads. And without being able to do that, you're keeping the rhythm kind of janky. It's all muddled up. And then if your rhythm isn't there, your shot making tends to have a a huge kind of struggle to get going. And that's where Jalen's really good because Jalen's become better at kind of stopping and popping, whereas Tatum needs to either be in space, create space off that sidestep, or get downhill. And they were just taking away all of the space for Tatum. Yeah, I think that's where you can give Jalen a lot of credit, like you said, where he's got the ability to kind of create um, quick looks based just off of his raw athleticism with the way he's able to stop and pop. I think with Tatum not being able to get comfortable, get into his rhythm, go to his moves, like he needs to have like a little bit of a setup to get to his buckets, or you see him settle. And I think we saw him settle a lot on those three-point attempts too. Like when he's just chucking when it's late in the shot clock and you're like, if it if it hits, it's great. If not, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now you've got to get back on defense because we just took a really bad look. We didn't work this shot clock for this possession at all. And it, it felt like the Celtics actually did a little bit towards the end of the first half. They were really focused on getting turnovers and then just getting out in transition. And they scored like a bunch of points and they made this push at the end of the first half where I was like, okay, like that's what you guys need to do. Like you, you, that's your bread and butter right there. Like they got back, they played strong defense, forced a couple turnovers. Um, Marcus Smart had a couple steals, I think, in the game. It, it, and they looked good. They were getting out and running and they cut the deficit to five at halftime. And that's kind of where I thought that they were going to continue to try and do is just get out, force turnovers, attack defensively. And they just didn't. Um, They didn't lean on their defense like they do when their offense isn't there. And I think part of that is just the nerves of the situation. I want to chalk that up to it. And then also that is coaching adjustments for Joe Missoula. I think it was bound to happen. Like I think this kind of game was bound to happen for the Celtics. And I think it's okay that it did. I think there's a dosage of humble pie here a little bit to a certain degree. You know, you just went in, you waxed the Suns, who are the best team in the Western Conference. Like you just blew the doors off of them more than anyone expected. And now you're going against a team that beat you in the finals, that clearly is like mentally still holds a place against both Tatum and Brown, and understandably so. And you saw them in a matchup. You saw some of those ghosts. You know, they started seeing some ghosts out there for sure, I think. And you also did it without Rob or Al present too. And I think that also impacted the way that they were able to rebound. Um, Kuminga had a couple plays where he just, he got a couple nasty rebounds. There was that really gross one where he went out for a finish against Tatum, missed, got the board, and then just had like, just full on yammed over Tatum. And like, that was kind of like one of those big energy plays where you could just tell like, that was a nail in the coffin for that game for sure. I will be fair. The Warriors were missing Andrew Wiggins, which is one of their better wing stoppers. Mm-hmm. And he's a rip, like, you know, a rip through threat and a catch and shoot threat for, um, for, from the three point line. So I'm not going to say that the Celtics injuries 
made this difficult for them when the Warriors were missing one of their key pieces too. I want to be fair here, but I will say that, you know, Kuminga definitely gave them an athletic boost. He's somebody that they've obviously trying to put some time into. They're developing slowly over the last few weeks. He's slowly started to put things together. He's looking a little bit more improved, but that's no excuse, right? Like you, if you're the Celtics, you're coming into this game You've been playing Celtics basketball for pretty much the entire season. What I mean by that is you're forcing other teams to try and adjust to you. You're not trying to adjust to them. Then you come in against the Warriors and then all of a sudden everybody's, you're trying, you're not making the Warriors play your style of ball. You're adjusting to their style of basketball. And that's a huge issue, especially when you're running a bunch of ghost actions around the perimeter, but nothing's really happening. You know what I mean? Because the Warriors are just so good. They're so their defensive principles are ingrained in them. And the reason that's important is because like ghost screens cause a lot of confusion because most teams switch on contact. So when there's a ghost screen, it's just like bang. I mean, what happens there is there's no contact at all, but you can hear the guy kind of like plant his feet. Do I switch? Do I not? The Warriors weren't switching. So you weren't creating the, the openings that you usually create. And then you end up in this kind of like foot it stuck in the mud offense where screens aren't working and so-and-so is not working. And for all the things said about Draymond Green, he is a generational defensive talent. You know, I don't like he's unquestionably one of the best defenders in terms of IQ, reading of the game, execution, versatility, and switchability that we've ever seen. So having him playing as the secondary defender and then basically quarterbacking your defense, that's tough, man. That's really, really tough. And whether Al was there or not, I don't think it makes much of a difference. Rob being there, I think we've got a bit of a difference now because you can limit the perimeter actions as much as you want. There's still a lob threat. There's still an over-the-top yeah. threat, right? Mm-hmm. But without Rob, I don't think Al makes a difference there. He just gives you what Blake Griffin was giving you, really a rebounding presence that maybe his passing would have been a little bit more and then shooting the free, but he doesn't give you anything new, whereas Rob would. So I think they missed Rob a bunch, but I also think that, hey, if Andrew Wiggins was there, things could have looked worse. Yeah, and I think that's also a fair statement to make. I mean, I'll leave it at this when it comes to this particular game. I don't think we saw either of these teams play at their best, um, and that's kind of crazy. I think this was a one of the best games I've seen from Clay in a while. I think Clay Thompson played fantastic. Steph Curry played as fantastic, fantastic as you'd expect him to do. Um, that man is just generational shooter, greatest shooter I've ever seen, probably the greatest shooter ever in NBA history, without question, just from the way that he plays. Um, but I don't think this is like the end-all be-all for the Warriors. I mean, clearly they've got some work to do, but they've been playing better as of late. As I said before, they're 14 and 13 on the year right now. So they're still on the climb. Like they're still moving up the ladder. Um, I'm hoping they don't get too far up there. But again, I don't think either of these teams is playing up to the expectation that they've got for themselves. And specifically for the Celtics, I think they went away from everything that's been working for them this year. And I think that part of that was to do with the fact that Tatum was made uncomfortable. And I think when you do that, you kind of throw the rest out of rhythm because guys like that, not only are they like the leaders of your team, but they are also the heart of everything that you do. You know, they do everything for you on offense and defense. And when those guys kind of get thrown off their groove, they're not in rhythm. It it bleeds into every aspect of the game and it clearly impacted the Celtics in this matchup. But I'm not going to go ahead and sit here and say that this is, 
an indication of where the Celtics are in terms of this season. I don't think this means that like they're a fluke or they're not capable of going into a series. If they had to go face the warriors again in the playoffs, like I don't think this is an indication of where they could be. You know, I think they're less than 20 or a little over 25% through the year right now at this point. Like this is not, there's nothing that I'm taking away from this game other than the fact of like, they play bad. They could play better. That this is a learning opportunity for everyone involved here. Oh, it's an outlier. Like yeah. it's, when you look at, we've got a large enough sample size now to know that Jason Tatum does not play this poorly no. this season. Do you know what I mean? We have a large enough sample size to know that the Warriors have not played this well recently. It was an outlier on both sides. Now there is an argument to be made that the Warriors might have a little bit of like rent-free headspace, a little real estate in the Celtics' heads. There is an argument to be made for that. Celtics are a younger team, but overall, like one win, what the next time the Celtics win, that headspace is gone. There was a time where the Celtics owned a little bit of real estate in the Warriors' heads when it was the Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward, that type, Terry Rozier, Jason and Jalen, up and coming guys. And everybody saw them as the Warriors' killers. And every time the Warriors played them, they just couldn't figure out how to beat the Celtics. So there was a time when Boston had that real estate, one win, two wins in a row. And that real estate's taken up and, you know, it's no longer available. We're taking it back. So with that being said, and we, we, I want to, let me just end on this. The Celtics are still, in my opinion, NBA finals favorites in terms of actually make the finals from the East. You know what I'm saying? And I still, I'm not going to change that opinion based on one game. I'm not going to change that opinion based on one road trip. I'm, I'm going to sit on that opinion until I'm given a reason to not to. I don't see many teams playing offense at this level. I don't see many guys, many teams with the depth that Boston has at this level. And I, just to touch on this as well, I saw a lot of people questioning why why Derek White got the closing minutes over Malcolm Brogdon. And I think it's because White gave you a lot defensively. Blocks, steals, taking charges. He was also driving a bunch. Brogdon gave you a lot offensively, but at that moment in time, you had enough offensive firepower on the court that you needed stops. It was all about getting stops when White was still on the floor, um, which is why I think that happened. So look, we've spoke, what, 15 minutes, 16, 17 minutes on takeaways from the game. I think that's enough. I don't really want to go any deeper because, you know, people already feel sad. We're going to make them feel even worse. <laughs> so I want to talk about the man that is Blake Griffin. I, I was going to say something when you mentioned him earlier, and I was like, I feel like we got to touch upon that because he's been a lot better than I expected he would be. And I don't know what kind of role that they like uh, agreed on for him, but he's come in here and he's given them some like really good supplemental minutes. I mean, and he got the start too with Al Horford out. He's gotten the start pretty much every single time. Like Al's been out now, they've been throwing Blake out there and he's been giving them a solid 20 minutes and he's looked pretty damn good doing it. So when Griffin joined the Celtics, when the Celtics signed Griffin, Griffin kind of did a little like, you know, interview and the role he said he'd taken was basically filling gaps. You know, if you need me coming off the bench, I'll do it. If you need me starting, I'll do it. If there's going to be multiple DMPs in a row, that's fine too. I'll do whatever you need me to do because I'm on a team with a genuine opportunity to win a ring. And I think that the amount of rest that he's getting and the very spe- specified roles that he's playing 
We're seeing some of the best basketball from Griffin in probably the last two, three seasons because he's fresher. He's not being asked to play all the time. You know, do I think that it was a mistake to ask him to drop against the Warriors? Yeah, of course it was a mistake to ask him to drop against the Warriors, but what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. You, put, you push <laughs> up on them, they turn the corner, they drive on you. If you, you drop back on them, they're going to hit floaters, they're going to hit free. What are you going to do? It's a picky poison, man. You didn't have Al Horford, you didn't have Rob Williams, but in the role that he's playing as a screener, a rebounder, a drop defender, and a three-point shooter, he's doing everything perfectly well. And he's even got a couple of dunks this year. You know what I'm saying? I think as a veteran minimum pickup, man, Blake Griffin was fine for me. Yeah, and I don't know how much else you could expect from him. And I think that's where it goes. Like In terms of a veteran pickup, he far exceeded my expectations. And I've always liked Blake in terms of what he gives you. And I thought overall, like his time in Detroit, he started to add a little bit more of a three ball. He's obviously a pretty good playmaker for a big man as well. I'm not elite defensively or anything like that, but you know, for the most part, for most of his career, all he was known for was being that explosive athlete, you know, like that's where it was. And when you start to get older, when you have the injuries that he's had over the years, those start to add up and it takes away from your natural athletic ability to go out there and just shine the way you did before. So the fact is, is like, he's kind of come into this role in, made it his own and in, in done so by adding little things here and there to his game. You know, he takes a lot of charges. He throws his body around a lot, lots of hustle plays, constantly fighting for boards and rebounds, keeping possessions alive, finishing baskets, um, being really crafty around the rim. He had a one play where he got, I think he got Kaminga or Looney. I think it was Kaminga got Kaminga to bite in a pump fake, finish the and one got to the line. Like those are very savvy things that you get from a guy like Blake Griffin, a veteran who's been in the league for so long. And he goes in there and he just, he just comes in and just does his work, does, does whatever you need him to do. And like, that's just perfect. And I think right now, even with Rob, not in the fold, like you start to have to think like, we got to find spots for Blake. You don't want to throw him out there too much. Cause you don't want to tire him out. You got to keep him fresh here. And then, but it's kind of like, you know, they they put him on ice for a couple games. They bring him out there when they need him. And he just does like all the little things that you want to do for a veteran. Gives you like a solid 20, 22 minutes a game. And then it's, all right, awesome. We'll, we'll take it from here, man. Like, thank you so much. I'm jealous at how quick he recovers. Same yeah. as Horford, you know. Like, I'm 35. I fell down the stairs three weeks ago. My leg is still messed up, dude. Oh, no. Like, it's not bad. It's not bad. But I'm like, yo, 10 years ago, I would have healed after like three days. I'm you like, don't bounce like you used to, do you? I'm on days like 20, day 24. And I'm like, yo, it's still a bit like tender, dude, to touch. I'm like, <laughs> and like these guys are out here taking bumps, getting thrown around all, all which way. And then all of a sudden, two days later, they're back to like 85, 90. Money talks, man. I'm like, yo. Go on, Tim. I'm just going to grab a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, sure. And I mean, it makes sense too, you know, um, just overall in the recovery speed. You got to think, you got to think, what do you got there? What is that? What kind of tea we got? English tea, dude. Like what, like what kind of English tea though? Like, is there a brand? Like PG Tips, Pyramids. It's the best brand. PG okay. Tips. I wouldn't know that. I don't even know if we have, I'm, I imagine we have that in America. So it's a tea bag, but it's in the shape of a pyramid. Oh. So then when you put it in the water, I don't know, it's meant to infuse your tea better. 
Well, like just this English, is a English, English technology. My wife came in clutch, man. So anyone that's new to this show, the more you watch it, the more you'll realize that my wife is awesome. So man, again, like, you know, when on the previous show we did, there's been times where she's bought me like a hot chocolates with cream and marshmallows. She always comes in clutch with the drinks and that while I'm doing podcasts, she knows my mouth gets a bit dry. So uh, now and again, you will get like the, uh, you will get the occasional pause where I'm just like, yeah, I got to grab a drink. It's because my wife came in clutch. So uh, for, shout out to Zoe for being awesome. Anyway, where were we? Blake, right? We we're talking Blake, about Blake. Blake. Yeah. Blake being able to bounce back. On a vet minimum, dude, like what he's giving you for a vet min is ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? This is what you want from like, when you're looking at teams around the league that are ring chasing and they're bringing in vets on vet minimums, vet minimums, and then not all of them are hitting, right? Like, I don't think the Marcus Aldridge could give you what Blake's giving you right now. No. No. You know what I'm saying? I don't think Cousins or Howard would have gave you what Blake's giving you right now. Like, it was the best choice, but it was like the most least discussed choice during the offseason, including myself. You know, I was like, yeah, I want I want DeMarcus Cousins and I want Carmelo Anthony. If you're going after vets, those are the two guys that I think you need to go and get. That's why Brad Stevens gets paid the big bucks and I don't. You know what I'm saying? It's why Brad Stevens runs an NBA team and I'm sitting here talking about how other people <laughs> are running NBA teams because one clearly knows more than the other and it's not me. So, you know, fair play to Brad. He, he read that situation very, very well. Um, I'm, I I love the Blake pickup and I think he's just... I, I, I'd like to see him sign another one-year deal at the end of this year if his body can take it for another season. Yeah, and I kind of wonder how much longer he's going to be able to do that. And I do want to see how the rest of the season kind of unfolds, especially as they get Rob into the fold too as well. Like, are they are they going to be able to manage minutes there? What does this do to his kind of role here in terms of, you know, are you going to be breaking him out, uh, you know, breaking him out every couple of games or so when you need Al to give a rest on a back-to-back? Like, are you throwing him out there to start with Rob? There's There's a lot of factors that are going to be at play, but I'm just wondering how long Griffin can give you this kind of output. And I think this is a lot better than what you saw from him in Brooklyn. I also think that Brooklyn sort of just threw him out there and they weren't really trying to put him in the best spots. It feels like they kind of rushed him on some things just from the way that he talks about being with the Celtics and the organization. Brooklyn weren't doing anything right. (laughs) No, they weren't. They clearly weren't because, you know, you've got a guy like Blake Griffin who's respected, who's been in the league for a long time for him to come in here and, be talking so glowingly about the Celtics organization, the the composure, the professionalism. It, I don't know what else is going on there, but it, there's definitely some stuff that's like going to come out in like some kind of weird 30 for 30 in like 20 years or something like that, where it's like, yeah, you know, we, we had like a prayer circle or something. We like some crazy stuff's going on behind the scenes in Brooklyn that we just don't know about. Like they've got peyote in the locker room. Like, I don't know, but <laughs> I just, I don't know. I, oh, I, I think it's the hallucinogens. That yeah, would explain a bunch. Yeah, it really would, wouldn't it? <laughs> that would explain a lot. <laughs> but <laughs> So like overall, I, I think with the Celtics roster, um, with Blake, the way that he's playing, do you think there's like any other moves that they can make like minor ones? And I only mentioned this because I don't know if you saw the Knicks news. But Cam Reddish is not happy. And apparently, apparently, allegedly, he could be had for like a second round pick. Okay, so you wave Justin Jackson, you bring in Cam Reddish. Yeah, I mean, you, you got to look at the salary there in terms of like tax dollars, because I'm pretty sure that he would fit in with Juancho TPE, Juancho Hernan Gomez TPE, no problem. 
So you could like hypothetically flip a second for him. And it's the question of like whether or not does he is he worth it really in terms of the tax so, dollars? So the bigger question is the first. So if you want to look at is he worth it with the tax dollars, right? The first thing you need to ask yourself is, is he good enough to get minutes on this team consistently? If the answer is no, he's not worth the tax dollars. In my opinion, right? You know, the, yeah. the time to bring in developmental guys is gone. Mm-hmm. So the question you have to ask, can Cam Reddish come into the Celtics rotation and be an impactful member off the bench? If you don't think that's ca- he's capable of doing that, it's not worth paying the additional tax. If your answer yeah. is actually, yeah, I think he could, you know, that Duke kind of linquitatum and the development system that Boston has and being able to be surrounded by so many high-level defenders and high IQ offensive guys, if you think Reddy should thrive in that environment, because he's been in some bad situations, right? He was in... He was with Atlanta. They're not really known for developing talent like that. And look, I mean, they have John Collins right now, and I've never seen someone so underutilized in my life. You know what I'm saying? They've done a good job with DeAndre Hunter. I'll give them that. But I think Hunter was just talented anyway. Then you go to New York, which is just a dumpster fire of bullshit right now. And it's quite clear that Tibbs didn't want him there from the get-go. That was crazy that they did that, though. Yeah, like, like they went and got actively, him anyway. Actively, like, no, I don't want this guy at all. So here you go. We're going to give him you anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's not like I don't think we've seen anywhere near as good of reddish as what we possibly could. And we can look at this from a Celtics perspective, right? Aaron Neesmith is starting for the Pacers right now on and off. And playing really, really fucking good basketball. Well, and Romeo too. I, I saw Romeo you on the feed earlier. Together. Yeah, Romeo's yeah. put a string of two, three games together. He's starting to figure it out. Probably the best offensive stretch of his career right now, using his explosiveness, playing more aggressive. But, you know, and what you're looking at is Romeo goes to a team where there isn't really that many opportunities for him because Richardson's ahead of him and, you know, he's got guys that he needs to kind of beat out in the rotation. But the, the culture and the development system there is elite in San Antonio. So they've worked with him. They've, you know, they've kind of shielded him away from the criticism by not playing him as much. And now they feel comfortable that he's able to go out there and do his thing. And then you look over in Indiana and they're trying to develop something over there. They've got a bunch of young guys. I think Benedict Mafferin's exceptional for a rookie. They've got Tyrese Halliburton and they've got Aaron Neesmith. They've got Jalen Smith. They're, they're developing guys over there. So, but both of them were in a bad situation in Boston, not because the talent development was bad or the culture was bad, but there was just no room for them to get the consistency and role that they needed to succeed. So the same could be said for Reddish, right? But if you couldn't find a role or minutes for Neesmith or, or Romeo, what makes you think you can do it now for Reddish? And that's why I wonder, but I also think my only thought process with it for Reddish specifically is I think that they could use another wing on the roster that they could lean on. And I just wonder if you're actually getting anything useful out of Jackson. And that's really where I have a problem. Like, I don't think, I don't think that like in any world, if they could have held on to like one of those guys, one of Neesmith or Lankford, I think they would have. 
I think that they needed to trade those guys in order to get the players that they wanted to get. Like in order to get Derek White, you needed to give up something of value. Also needed to give up salary. So like, that's why you ended up moving on from Langford And the same can be said for trying to go out and get Malcolm Brogdon. You needed to cobble together enough money to make it happen as well as enough like young talent to be like, Hey, this is a former lottery pick. He's supposed to be like a sharp shooting wing. We just don't, we can't make it work here. It hasn't worked out. He could use a fresh start. You're a young rebuilding team that can afford to give him minutes and let him work through these growing pains and look at him now. And so like, that's kind of what ended up happening with those guys. Now, I mean, if push comes to shove and you needed to give up those guys and you know, you had a chance to keep one of them, maybe it's like a different conversation, but I, neither of those guys was going to be able to do what they're doing now on the Celtics just because when you, when you're in that situation and you're not getting playing time and then the playing time that you are getting, you aren't executing on it. It it takes a toll mentally. So I think getting the fresh starts for them helped now for reddish. I feel like he's had a little bit more experience than either of those guys. And I think given the search, like I think he was screwed from the jump with the Knicks situation. Like, I think that can be said. We talked about it with Tibbs not liking him. Like, from the jump, was like, I don't want this guy. And they went out and they traded for him anyway. And so you you go ahead and you you trade for him, and then he just sits on your bench doing nothing. So you're you're not giving him playing time. You're not letting him work through anything. Yeah, the guy's going to be unhappy. So I'm just wondering if you could make something happen. Would you be able to carve out a role here if given the opportunity? And I think that's what you're, you know, you've talked about a lot, but I just, I think there's a chance for him to do that here. Like the Celtics are not super deep on the wing. Like who's the guy that you would play at the three outside of Brown or Tatum? I think you could slide Brogdon up there and not miss a beat. That's the only thing, right? It's like you're using one of your guards to slide over to that three spot. Yeah. I think, but you're not missing a beat because they've got the size and they've got the versatility defensively, right? Now, could you, would you put Reddish in there? Fine. Yeah, of course. Okay, that's fine. You can fit him in there. Mm -hmm. How many minutes is he going to make the rotation once the playoffs come? Like this dude's earning five, let's say six million a year. So you can triple that with the tax and then put that six million back on top. So you're talking like a $21 million tax hit. And that's you know, where it's give like, or take ugh. a couple of million bucks. Like yeah. for a guy that's a restricted free agent after the end of this season, if you extend your qualifying offer, which is going to be around about $8.1 million. Mm-hmm. Are you really sure he's worth? He's definitely worth it. If you can all of a sudden make sure that he's developing. Like if he's developing, he's worth it, right? But if you can't give him the minutes to develop, what's the point in doing it in the first place? Well, and, and, and that's the argument, right? Like, I think the argument behind it would be if you can't give him the minutes, then you don't do it. I, I, I only think about that because I think there's... I think the Celtics have these assets here, right? Like, they've got the trade exceptions. And right now, I don't think that they should go out and do any massive big swing deals that are going to mess with what you have. If it ain't broke, you don't fix it. But I do think like they could go ahead and add a little bit of depth here and there. That way, they're able to give some of these guys a little bit more leeway. Like for like Tatum and Brown, like you're able to give them a little bit more rest here and there when you need to. But 
maybe that's something that just doesn't happen right away. Um, but it could be something that they end up having, you know, to worry about down the line. And that's kind of, I think the Celtics depth overall is good. I think the one spot now that I'm starting to worry about is that wing spot. So I figured I would just mention it. I don't think they end up doing anything for reddish, but it is something that kind of came across my mind when I saw it pop up. Cause I'm like, he's a guy that makes a lot of sense to add right in a certain way. Yeah. Look, he can get, he can give you some shooting. He can give you some slashing. Mm-hmm. He can run the floor. He definitely makes that second unit a little bit stronger in terms of depth, in terms of skill set. It's just in terms of return on investment, like a second round pick, whatever it is what it is. Do you know what I mean? But that $22 million tax hit or whatever it may be in that region, 21, 19, whatever it may be, that return on investment needs to be quite high. You need to feel good enough to be like, Hey, we're in the NBA finals and one of our primary guys goes down hurt. We can call on Reddish and know that he's going to produce at a very consistent level. So we are not completely and utterly screwed. And right now, I just don't feel confident enough to bet that type of money on him being consistent in a bit part role for the rest of the season while developing with the coaching staff and staying happy while doing it. I just don't have that confidence. Yeah. And I think that's fair. I think. I think the only reason I even thought about it was because that that asking price is so low. And I mean, that's a situation where the Knicks really kind of bungled that. Like, you've got a guy that already wants out. You've only had him for a year. That whole situation for the Knicks is just a nightmare. I'm, and, and again, this is kind of where I'm, I'm happy with the Celtics with the way they've run stuff. And granted, you still have to worry about getting Grant Williams a deal at the end of the day. So getting adding another like RFA to the situation is just going to muddy the water there. So that's something I wouldn't want to do. But I do wonder if there's, you know, any kind of small moves. You know, I figure they'll be on the buyout at some point. Like they will look at the buyout market. But there's any kind of small moves to just give the Celtics a little bit more oomph. Just something. I don't think that they need it, but like I always like to explore the ways of like, how can I tweak this situation to like make it better? I don't want a film room. Yeah, and that's probably what it is at this point, right? You know, it it's I'm not joking. like they don't have the talent. Yeah, I'm joking, but not joking. Yeah. <laughs> All right, with that, guys and girls, after we've rambled on for 40 minutes, if you're a evening or morning, if you're watching on YouTube, then I hope you enjoyed seeing us talk. If Hopefully. you're listening on podcasting platforms, then I hope you enjoyed listening to us talk. Everybody stay safe. We will be back again on Wednesday. Wednesday. Wednesday, yes. <laughs> Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We will be back on Wednesday to talk about the Clippers game and whatever else has unfolded between now and then. Everybody stay safe. Don't do anything we wouldn't do. I'll let Tim say goodbye to. Cheers.